fail. They say police fail to basically investigate the attacks and murders and the missing women off areas of town that are known to be for sex workers. So, for instance, the woman who actually escaped Haslett's home said that he picked her up on Prospect Ave, which is known for prostitution. All right, Peggy Lowe, thank you. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts now with Brian Enton. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Banfield. I'm Brian Enton in for Ashley tonight. We've told you about all of the drama and the problems with the Long Island serial killer investigation over the last 10 years. All of the dirt that has come out about the police department and the prosecutor and all the rest ever since the arrest. It really was just a total mess behind the scenes. I give the task force credit there. They did a lot over the last year. But before that, man, it was a mess You had the former police chief who was accused of relations with sex workers and all the fighting between the cops and the FBI. The cops did not want the FBI to get involved for a long, a long time. Uh, But tonight we've got new information that shows the situation was actually way worse than any of us could have even expected. A new report suggests that an arrest could have probably been made in the case 13 years ago instead of just this year. Did political infighting keep a serial killer on the streets for more than a decade? We have the reporter who broke the story. They're going to join me live tonight. Also, kidnapped, chained, sexually assaulted, and locked in a makeshift cinder block cell with a metal door that only opens from the outside. Imagine being locked in this room. We've got the pictures right here. It was hell can't even imagine it. It sounds like something from a horror movie, literally. No, we're not talking about Rex Hurman's house. It happened to a woman in Oregon who was able to break free and flag down help. The suspect has been caught and is linked to at least four other assaults. We're going to have all those details, plus all the pictures, and there's way more, uh, and even disturbing how-to notes about how to, ki- how to build a killer dungeon that the suspect left behind. That's all coming up uh, in just a bit. Plus, a Hollywood sex therapist with famous ex-boyfriends like Drew Carey and Dave Navarro was thrown off a balcony and killed. Police say uh, a stalker is responsible. The case is now finally about to go to trial, and tonight, one of her best friends will join me live uh, about what, what he says was happening behind the scenes with the stalker and why law enforcement, perhaps, did not do enough to prevent that death. But we start tonight with the arrest of accused Long Island serial killer Rex Hureman. Last month has been, uh, we've seen many historic, extraordinary, and case closed. Those are the words that have been used to describe the case since we started covering it. But there might be one more description to add to that list. Much too late. There is a new Washington Post story out. Six long pages, an expose on everything that went wrong over the last decade on that investigation. And a lot went wrong. We knew it. We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. But the Washington Post, man, they found out a lot more. I was going through it six pages. I was highlighting like crazy because there was so much uh, that really jumped out at me in this uh, this article Unbelievable new details that the Washington Post reveal, uh, including that police may have had a chance to arrest Hureman 
10 years ago. The article paints a really disturbing picture of the political infighting that may have kept the Gilgo Beach murders from being solved soon after the bodies were discovered. The Post spoke to more than 20 law enforcement insiders, very familiar with the case, who say the disagreements between prosecutors, local police, and the FBI may have allowed a serial killer to continue stalking his prey for 13 years when he should have been sitting in a jail cell. And it's not just anonymous sources and Monday morning quarterbacks making these claims. Phil Boyle, a former New York State senator, told The Post they could have caught this guy a decade ago. And the current Suffolk County District Attorney, Ray Tierney, who oversaw the task force that arrested Hearman, said the investigation was hindered during its early years due to a lot of dysfunction among the leadership and not a great relationship between the DA and the federal authorities. And let's not forget about the former police chief who's accused of being involved in a prostitution ring himself. There are so many things that went wrong with this investigation. These claims, uh, they are especially disturbing since Rex Hurman continued to contact sex workers as recently as this year. I'm joined by two people who know a lot about the infighting in this case. Gus Garcia Roberts is the investigative reporter for The Washington Post who broke the story and the author of the book, Jimmy the King. And Alexis Linkletter is a podcaster who has questioned the police response to the Gilgo Beach murders on her show Unraveled, the Long Island serial killer. Gus, let me start with you. I mean, what an article. What a read. Uh, So detailed, so much sourcing. I don't even know where to begin with the problems. Um, It seems like this was really a problem with, with leadership in many ways. Was it just the local police not wanting anyone else to come in and assist? Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a few people that were familiar with the Gilgo case would be under the illusion that the investigation was well handled, you know, throughout its more than a decade history. But um, the way it's been touted by the previous DA out there was that, you know, since he sort of took over in 2017, between then and 2021, that that, you know, it was a high tech investigation that was sort of leading towards the victory here in 2023, where um, where somebody's finally in cuffs. But, you know, speaking to lots of police sources, uh, law enforcement sources on both sides of the divide, including that D.A., Tim Sinney, really what what uh, myself and my my colleague, Alex, heel um came across was that in fact there was just there was just major infighting and dysfunction that delayed the case uh and what it really boiled down to was the prosecutors were trying to pursue sort of this high-tech investigation in which they were trying to hone in on somebody who they knew lived in the massapequa park new york area uh while homicide detectives uh did not want to be told how to investigate or trying to investigate outside of that area um, you know, thought the prosecutors were trying to uh, make them go uh, go over leads and suspects that they had already ruled out. And the result of that was basically an impasse. Uh, and eventually, you know, the lead detective, which this had not been previously reported, the lead detective who had been in charge of the case, been on the case for about a decade, uh, was was actually removed. Uh, and the reason that Tim Sinney, the former DA, gave was because he refused to cooperate with the FBI, which 
as I'm sure we'll get into a sort of a long is, is a familiar story out there in Suffolk County of, of the local um, investigators refusing to cooperate with with federal authorities. One of the things, Alexis, that I found the most confusing is you had this claim from a friend of one of the victims uh, that she says that she gave the description of Rex Hurman's car early on uh, and that it was basically overlooked by the detectives, that they had this key piece of evidence very early on that could have helped solve this, but apparently no one paid attention to it. At one point recently, police have sort of disputed that. Uh, where does that stand right now? I mean, did they have the evidence? Do we know? So the witness was actually a male witness, and he was spoken to in 2010 after the remains of Amber Costello were found, and they started investigating her murder, and he did give a description of the Chevy Avalanche, and all that's detailed in the bail application court documents. So there's little dispute as to whether they had this evidence back in 2010. They absolutely did. And I do think the dysfunction within the department, which has existed since the discovery of a Long Island serial killer um, was the reason it was overlooked. I mean, this is not new, this infighting. Back in 2011, the now jailed and disgraced DA, Tom Spoda, um, was arguing publicly with Richard Dormer, the police commissioner at the time, about whether there was one serial killer or two. I mean, they were arguing publicly about this in press conferences. And nothing has appeared to have changed. What I will say, though, is Tim Senior, I know, wanted to solve this case. However, I do think the people that came in after, the DA and the new police commissioners, they had a huge mess to clean up from mm-hmm. James Burke and Hawks Boda. So I think this has just been pervasive. Um, in the department's history, really, even, even prior to James Burke, there's been this kind of dysfunction in this police department. One of the things that I found interesting, Gus, in your article, you talk about the fact that at one point they were zeroing in on a police officer, that that was someone who they actually believed uh, was a suspect. Do you think that that was just a, a huge distraction from the person who they should have been going after? Right. And so this, this, you know, this was sort of a glimpse of you know, the false turns and dysfunction that were going on in the department in recent years, unbeknownst to the, to the public, you know, uh, the DA's office had narrowed down use, using cell cell phone, uh, data. They had narrowed down the area to a small part of massive people park and were trying to background residents of that small area. Uh, and one of the top suspects in, in 2021, which happened to be an election year for Tim City, was a ex-police officer whose initials happened to match uh, a belt that was that, mm. that bound one of the victims um, in the case. And detectives did not want to investigate this guy. They said that they had already felt that they had uh, ruled him out. And so this was sort of an example, the kind of disagreements that that you that that. Uh, that they came across that that essentially wasted time. Now, there's always going to be suspects that you're going to want to background and and rule out. That doesn't, you know, that in itself is not dysfunction. But but they cannot just get to that point. You know, this this massive law enforcement enforcement jurisdiction, very high tech toys, could not do the low tech job of sort of backgrounding each person. And so my understanding is they basically stalled on on this ex-cop uh who is you know we now know is a was just a red herring and he's been ruled out um 
And, you know, Rex Hurman lived about three blocks away from that ex-cop, which shows how close they were and also how far they were. Alexis, Gus talks a lot about the dysfunction in his Washington Post article. One thing that I've been wondering, though, and I've been so interested in former police chief Burke. I mean, his shady history, the fact that he was connected to and investigated for being connected to sex workers and the way that he was thrown out of the department in the end. I mean, is it possible, Alexis, that this goes beyond dysfunction and that there may have been an actual cover up and some of this may have been intentional uh, to not really be treating this investigation uh, the right way? Well, this is certainly probably a fascination that Gus and I share. I mean, he wrote a book on this man, and he's layered and he's complicated. And I think that James Burke knew what his indiscretions were. He liked to hire sex workers, and he... I interviewed several people who told me that he was going to sex parties in Oak Beach, a stone's throw from where the bodies of these women were found. So it's not that surprising to to think that he wouldn't want the FBI poking around and possibly uncovering this. So it makes a lot of sense that he would block the FBI probe into this case and reject offers of the FBI to help solve this case. I mean, he didn't want anyone poking around and uncovering what he was doing in his spare time. Gus, do you think that that was Burke's motivation? I mean, do you think, again, this just goes beyond them making a lot of mistakes and not liking the feds coming in? Do you think there may have been an intentional cover-up here? Um, I think in the beginning it was probably territorialism, uh, you know, sort of protecting his law enforcement turf from outsiders. And then you you got to remember, you know, by – he he started in 2012. It was very poor timing for this case because he basically started within months of the bodies, uh, the 10th body being found, um, and within weeks of Shannon Gilbert finally being found. Uh, and, you know, within less than a year, he had beaten up a, a drug addict who had stolen from his truck a duffel bag with sex toys and porn in it. And within a few months of that, the feds, knew about that and were investigating. So for most of Burke's tenure, he was engaged in this for years, a high-level uh, criminal conspiracy with top people in the PD and the DA's office, uh, as Alexis mentioned, ultimately brought down the DA and a top corrupt corruption prosecutor, lots of unindicted co-conspirators. Basically, you know, he turned um, this law enforcement jurisdiction into a criminal Cabal. Um, and this is the police and- chief. I mean, again, for people watching this, this is the police chief that Gus is talking about. And we're wondering why this thing didn't get solved for more than a decade. I mean, look at everything that was going on uh, in this area. It's, it was really a total mess. Right. I mean, he was ordering cops to commit perjury to cover up. There was a top lieutenant of his that was afraid he was going to kill him if he flipped against the feds. So the whole time that, that, that this investigation is going on under his purview, you know, he is completely distracted, as are other top people in law enforcement, by trying to cover up their own criminal actions. And it failed eventually. But what you kind of see is this just blank space, whether whether or not it was trying to cover up for friends, personal actions, or just trying to keep the feds out of his turf. You just see this kind of like 
this, this period when there was no progress during this pivotal time in this in this massive case, not only in Yogo, but also in MS-13 cases. And it's really sad for sort of the marginalized victims of, of both of those giant you know, investigations. Yeah, what a shame for the victims and their families. Um, Alexis, I'm curious, is this all possibly going to end up helping Rex Hureman in the end? I mean, do you think this is just the greatest thing for his lawyers as they plan on a defense? Because it seems like they're going to be able to go back through all of this and say, wait a minute, these these are the people you should trust, jury, who came up with this arrest? I mean, it, it, it seems like they've been, you know, given all this on a platter. Well, I think a good criminal defense attorney will try anything and throw it against the wall to see what sticks. However, if you look at the court documents, if you look at the evidence laid out in the bail application court documents, they've really tackled it in a multifaceted way. You know, they've got cell phone, they've got mitochondrial DNA, they've got circumstantial, they got physical. We don't even know what they pulled from the house. So, and because this tip from 2010 about the Chevy Avalanche, that's not new. Um, it was sitting there, it was ignored, but it's very hard evidence to argue. So while sure, the criminal defense attorney will try, um, this is a really strong case so far though. I don't know what they're gonna do, but it's gonna be a really tough case to try to defend. Yeah, and while obviously there were massive problems all those years, um, it does seem like this task force that came in uh, more recently really did do a pretty incredible job uh, with their investigation. Uh, Gus Garcia-Roberts and Alexis Linkletter, thank you both so much uh, for coming on tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Okay, we have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. I want you to look at this photo. Look at this. And again, we're not talking about Rex Hureman here. This is a different case. Imagine being kidnapped and dragged 450 miles from your home and locked in that cement room and sexually assaulted in that cement room, banging on the door until your hands are bloody and you are finally able to break free. That's what the FBI says happened to one victim of a suspected kidnapper in Oregon. All these details came out today. We're going to break it all down for you coming up. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. This next story, I mean, oh my gosh, what this woman went through. A violent sex offender. That is what the FBI is calling a man arrested July 16th after allegedly kidnapping and holding a woman prisoner in a cinder block cell that he built inside his garage in Oregon. And there is that cell right there. His name is Nagazi Zuberi, though he's also gone by several different aliases, Justin Kuazi, Justin Heitch, and Sakima. So far, he's been charged with just one count of interstate kidnapping, though that could definitely change. It seems like they're building a case on this guy. Authorities say he is linked to at least four more sexual assault cases across four different states. He was busted after a sex worker he allegedly picked up more than 450 miles from his home managed to break free 
from that cinder block cell, a cell with a metal door that only opened from the outside with what looks like uh, just a chair and a light inside. Police say his victim banged so hard on that door that her hands were bloody, but she was eventually able to free herself, to break free from that chamber and flag down a passing driver. Can you imagine? After authorities raided Zuberi's home, they not only found the cell, but handwritten notes describing a disturbing plot for what he called Operation Takeover. One reads, leave phone at home, make sure they don't have a bunch of people in their life. You don't want any type of investigation. Another reads, dig a hole straight down 100 feet and list materials to build what could be a possible dungeon. Concrete block, rubber coat, foam insulation, and waterproof concrete. I mean, people like this live among us. It is truly just disturbing stuff, literally like a horror movie. Here's what Special Agent Stephanie Shark uh, said about it today. Although law enforcement daily combats violence and tragedy, some cases alarm even the most seasoned investigators, particularly when shocking details are revealed when police responded to a 911 call in Klamath Falls, Oregon on July 15th, they discovered a makeshift cinder block cell with a metal door and a singular light bulb above for light. In a residential garage, and a woman who bravely escaped her terrifying circumstances. Sadly, we believe there are more victims, as well as persons out there who might have vital information relevant to our ongoing investigation. Gosh, I just hope that woman is doing okay tonight. I want to bring in uh, Mike King. He is a retired homicide detective with 28 years law enforcement experience and host of the podcast uh, Profiling Evil. Mike, thank you for being with me. One of the things I found most alarming about this, besides that picture and all the details, is when they arrested this man, uh, they say that he was holding one of his kids and that his wife was also with him. So apparently, like, this guy had a family while he was doing all of this. You know, I, we've seen it over and over again, haven't we, Brian, where where these people are living these dual lives, this public life of where they go to work, this private life that maybe the family, the wife knows about. And then this secret side where they're they're predatory and they're committing horrendous crimes like this one. And, and, and so it's going to be interesting to see what the response is, how much they really understood what was going on. How could you not live in that house and know that there's a bunker being built in the garage? That's a challenge. When you heard the FBI agent there say that they believe there are likely more victims out there, are these just women who were also sex workers that that perhaps got away, maybe afraid to to come forward now because of the nature of the, the job they were doing? Or what do you think the FBI meant? Well, you know, I always looked as an investigator at the victimology first and foremost. Why do these people become victims? And what is it that really motivates that offender to select them? Is it the ability to get them away from a normal setting, to get them to a place that most people wouldn't go to uh, in order to to uh, do what they do? Uh, or... Is that they're really focused on a specific kind of thing, maybe for some in their whacked out mind reason to clear the streets of problematic people or in other uh, places. Just let me find someone who isn't going to be found and, and not going to be discovered. And we kind of see this in his manifestos, don't we, where he's indicating find somebody that doesn't have a support system behind them. 
bots so sick that they go after these sex workers. We've seen it all over the country because they think that they just don't even matter, um, which is obviously so wrong. But back to that picture with, with the cinder block cell in the garage. I mean, if this guy has a family, I mean, didn't someone say, like, why is he building a cell in the garage? Like, do you think anybody knew what was going on? You know, you know, they can they're such chameleons and it's really going to be interesting to find out why is this guy traveling all over the country? Why does making a 400 mile trip to Seattle seem to fit in his do- daily routine? He could have convinced people he was doing a little uh, uh, seller to, to store wine or he could have been building a home office or a place to store his guns. But when you look at it, it's really pretty poor workmanship. I mean, a, a stick inside wall and those cinder blocks, to me, Brian, don't even look like they've been cemented together, that they're just kind of stacked on each other. So it really makes you think about the organization level of this offender, too. They had lots of fantasy. He has lots of fantasy going on in his mind, but he doesn't have the know-how to put it together. Yeah, it's a good point. And the fact, thank goodness, she was able to, I mean, she had bloody hands. She was able to bang her way out of that room, which, thank God, but you make a good point. I mean, doesn't seem it it looks like a cell, but it doesn't seem like the best construction if she was able to just bang herself out again. Thank goodness it wasn't the best construction. A lot of people on social media I've seen today have been speculating about what this guy may have done for a living, you know, interstate highways. People were speculating maybe like a truck driver. Do we know any anything more about him? You know, I haven't been able to find anything, and I've been mapping out every resident that he's had in the last five, ten years. And uh, this guy's all across the country. So is he a guy who's going out and selling door-to-door in different uh, neighborhoods? Or is he, like you've just said, a truck driver? And, you know, we have this mentality in law enforcement that when an event happens, we often think, okay, who done it? And are they right in my neighborhood rather than thinking of a predator who could be very uh, transient and coming in and out? This map we're looking at, I think really points out those locations kind of highlighted in red, uh, showing this different states this guy's been living in. Yeah, very interesting. Like all across the country, you have to wonder what his history is. And by the way, uh, if it wasn't disturbing enough, he apparently posed as an undercover officer when he tased the victim uh, and kidnapped her. So it was apparently pretending to be a police officer initially. Really disturbing stuff. We're going to stay on this one. Um, and, and clearly there's likely more victims out there, like the FBI said. Mike King, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Hope you have Great a good night. You. Good to see you too. Thank you. Okay, if you have been a victim of sexual assault and need help, and again, people are afraid to come forward. You heard the FBI say that. Don't be afraid. The National Sexual Assault Hotline, hotline they can help. Uh, the number is one 800 656 Hope, Or if you believe you have uh, been a victim of Zuberi or if you have any information related to the case, you saw all those states where he lived. So that could be a lot of you, you may have seen something. Uh, visit FBI.gov slash Zuberi victims or you can call 1-800-CALL-FBI. Okay, still a lot more uh, to come tonight. We've got the UFO whistleblower David Grush, the claims that the Vatican knows more than they are saying about UAPs and their responses to our questions only deepen the mystery. If you saw our show last night, we were outside the Vatican. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper coming up. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. Okay, as we all know by now, at least if you've been watching News Nation, UFO whistleblower David Grush's claims that the U.S. government has a secret spacecraft retrieval program and is in possession of non human biologics have made waves. They certainly have and prompted a blockbuster hearing in Congress. But it's a different claim from his exclusive News Nation interview with investigative journalist Ross Coldhart uh, that took us to Europe yesterday, specifically Vatican City. Grush alleged that decades ago, the Vatican shared important intelligence with Washington about a partially covered up UAP that crashed in Italy. Uh, here's what Grush said. You say it's a 90-year cover-up. Just about, yeah. 90 years. 1933 was the first recovery in Europe, in uh, Magenta, Italy. Italian government moved it to a secure uh, air base in Italy for the, the rest of kind of the fascist regime until 1944, 1945. And, you know, the uh, Pope Pius XII back-channeled that. So the Vatican um, was involved. Yeah, and told the Americans what the Italians had, and, and we ended up scooping it. So let me be very clear about this. You're saying that the Catholic Church... The Vatican, Mm -hmm. they know about the existence of non-human intelligence on this planet. Certainly. News Nation's executive producer, Susanna Pinto, has been working on getting to the bottom of it, at least trying. And while the Vatican press office has not responded, the Vatican Observatory uh, did have this to say. I've been in touch with the director of the Vatican Observatory. Uh, He said that since they don't specifically study UAPs or UFOs, he's not going to comment. It's also um, an issue that in the past, the Vatican Vatican Observatory, when they have commented and made a statement, um, they feel like their comments are taken out of context. Okay, so joining me now to talk more about this is David Childress. He is the owner of Adventure Unlimited Press, a publishing house dedicated to ancient mysteries and unexplained phenomena. He's authored or co-authored more than a dozen books, including Technology of the Gods, the Incredible Sciences of the Ancients. Uh, David, thanks for being with us. First of all, I'm curious what you make of the Vatican not commenting on this now, because in our research we found that in the past— They have talked about the possibility of UAPs, said something like, you know, everybody's God's children sort of thing. But 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 this time they really seem to be backing off on making any kind of statement. What do you make of it? Yeah, Brian, uh, it's good to be on your show. I'm not surprised that the Vatican uh, doesn't want to comment on this. It's this is a can of worms that. Uh, isn't something they want to talk about. Uh, you, you know, you can kind of understand that too. That it's when you're talking about religion and and uh, churches and all those kind of things. The idea of discussing extraterrestrial life uh, is is something they would probably rather not do. 
There is reporting that the head um, of the Vatican Observatory, which is interesting, we got into the last this last night. I don't think a lot of people realize that they they do have these observatories and are interested in studying space. Uh, his name is Jesuit brother Guy Consolmagno. Uh, says that Catholic intellectual tradition would have no problem uh, with the idea of intelligent life. He, he said that in the past again, like. Why, why keep it a secret? I mean, do you think that, that, that people really wouldn't be able to sort of mend the two together? Yeah, I think it is a problem that uh, just people's religious beliefs, uh, what they think is, you know, their salvation uh, and how extraterrestrials would fit into that. I mean, the, the Catholic Church has said, you know, that they have no problems with life on other planets, that God uh, is, you know, uh, great and and can create life on all kinds of planets uh, and not just on Earth. So, you know, the Catholics have said, yeah, we have no problem with extraterrestrial life. But for them to come and say that, yeah, we've got information on a crashed UFO and, uh, uh, you know, UFOs, extraterrestrials and things like that, it's just not a statement they're going to make. Uh, the You know, the American military is not going to make a statement about that either. And they probably know a lot more about uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials than the Vatican does. Are there other religions, I'm curious, David, um, that, that you know of in all the, the research that you've done that are more open to the idea? Yeah, I would say there are. Uh, you know, Hindus uh, and Buddhists, uh, you know, Tibetans and whatnot, the idea of uh, extraterrestrial life and things like that, I think is, they have no problem with that. And UFOs, uh, particularly in Hindu and Buddhist uh tradition, they have UFOs. UFOs have been flying around for thousands of years, according to them. They call them Vimanas. They have whole texts about it. Uh, and so that's the other thing, say, with the Vatican, too, is that UFO sightings have been going on for thousands of years. Uh, in, in the Middle Ages, in Italy, too, there were many uh, UFO reports. And even even painters painted flying saucers into their paintings and things like that. And, you know, the Vatican would probably have some of those paintings uh, in their, you know, vast archives and stuff like that, that, that have UFOs in them. So the idea that, you know, UFOs have been around there and that the Vatican, the Catholic Church, the, the Hindus, the Buddhists, uh, Mormons as well believe in extraterrestrial life. And uh, I mean, they are also a religion that, that wouldn't have any problems with that. I think a lot of, you know, modern day religions don't have a problem with life on other planets. And the idea that we're not alone in the universe is, you know, a, a pretty standard idea now. Yeah. But it's still not something I think that major religions and particularly the Catholic Church wants to address. Back to David Grush's claims that the Pope uh, in the 1930s alerted America about a crashed craft that Italy had in their possession. Can you talk to us a little bit about that time frame? I mean, does it surprise you that um, that he's making this allegation? I mean, does that fit in with, uh, you know, diplomatic relations between America uh, and Italy and, and the Vatican during that time? Yeah, I had not ever heard of this story before this to me is completely new. I've read all kinds of UFO books, and I, I'd never heard of this one. Any uh, UFO reports that are before World War II are particularly interesting, and, and this is, is one of those. 
Um, you know, you go when you go back to the 20s and 30s with the inventor Nikola Tesla, uh, he constantly talked about electric spacecraft, death rays, uh, ray guns and things like that. Uh, we were watching uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, uh, you know, those kind of things. They're electric spacecraft that are running around. They're not rockets. They're not jets. They're like UFOs. So in the 20s and 30s, the idea that flying saucers and things like that existed, spacecraft, extraterrestrials, that was already a, a popular idea. Yeah, it's interesting uh, how you can trace all that. During- Sorry, it's interesting, though. I was just thinking how, you, how you're saying, you know, you can trace it all the way back uh, to these, these times, you know, with, with, with the Buddhists and, and the Hindus. Uh, just fascinating. Uh, we're out of time, David Childress, though. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'll follow up with you uh, as we learn more. All right. Okay, still to come tonight, a murder trial set to begin in Los Angeles. The victim uh, was a popular and respected therapist who ran with an A-list crowd and was once engaged to a TV star. Friends and loved ones, they want justice for Amy Harwick. More than three years after her death, They are hoping justice is close at hand. Amy Harwick's story told through someone who loved her. That's coming up next. It has been more than three years now since somebody killed Dr. Amy Harwick in Los Angeles. Amy was 38 years old, a prominent family and sex therapist with a whole city full of friends and colleagues who adored her. Amy was a fixture in Hollywood and entertainment industry circles, a sought-after marriage counselor with a Ph.D. in human sexuality, a former model and dancer who dated celebrities like Dave Navarro and was even engaged to comedian and game show host Drew Carey. The man accused of stalking and strangling Amy Harwick and throwing her from her third-floor balcony goes on trial later this month, and people close to her are convinced it was her ex-boyfriend who murdered her, and he now faces a possible death sentence if convicted. I want to bring in Robert Koshland. He and Amy Harwick were best friends. He was one of the people in contact with her uh, last. Thank you so much for being with us, Robert. I mean, just seeing that video where um, where they were singing happy birthday, you, you can just tell um, what, what an amazing person she was. Tell, tell me a little bit about Amy. Yeah, Amy was a superstar. She was somebody that you know, and they say someone walked in a room and, and lit it up. Um, that was her, but it, it was more than that. When you talk to Amy, you felt like this deep connection because she was really just interested in people. She was beautiful. She was talented. And at the same time, she really made time for people. So when you um, interacted with her, it was like you and she were the only people in the world at that moment. So she was somebody that really like touched everybody that she met in a way that um, is unmatched in anyone else I've, I've ever met. She's, she was really quite a wonder. Yeah, that really comes through in the photos. Um, it's just such a tragedy. Tell us about that night, Valentine's Day 2020. Um, what happened? What do you last remember? Well, she and I had... Um, she had gone out with my wife at the time uh, that morning, and then um, I had talked to her in the afternoon. That night, I sent her a text message um, before I went to bed. Uh, she and my former wife and I were planning a trip to uh, London and Scotland, and I sent her a text about a restaurant that I thought we should go to. 
And um, she responded, it looks good or cool or something like that. Um, <clears throat> I, I was in bed. So uh, in the morning, I woke up and I had uh, quite a few texts and some calls um, from the police and um, saying I should get in touch with them. So um, so I did and ended up going down to the station and they said that she had been assaulted and mm. um from from there, you know, they they asked me, you know, who do you think could have done this? And I said, I think it's her ex-boyfriend, uh, Gareth, um, because she had told me a few weeks prior that if anything happens to me, this 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 is the guy. Um, and I, I knew who he was from her talking about him before. And she had started sharing her location with me at that time. So even when I got all those calls, I checked her location and it said it was still in her house. But I guess her phone was just in the house. And this was Gareth uh, Purse house. Um, her right. boyfriend from a, from a long time ago is my understanding, right? I think it was like eight years or so. Do you yeah, know? She hadn't seen him in eight years. Yeah, I hadn't seen the guy in eight years. Do you know why suddenly he sta- started as accused of like stalking her again all of a sudden? Well, over the those eight years, there were a few instances where she was pretty convinced that he had uh, stalked her, but she didn't have proof. Um, someone broke into her apartment and stole all her photo albums and turned some things upside down and so forth and erased her computer. Um, I was there. Uh, I, I went over her place after that happened, and she was convinced he had done it. Um, she had applied for a job at one point, and a bunch of anonymous uh, uh, messages were left for the, the place of her employment. And she had posed for a Playboy at one point, and they'd sent a bunch of her Playboy photos. So uh, she didn't end up getting the job. Mm. Um, so there was a number of incidents over the years. But in January of 2020, she did run into him at an event where he was a photographer, and she had last minute decided to attend. And that's what started the whole thing again. And did she get a restraining order from him at one point? She had gotten a restraining order many years prior um, when they broke up around, you know, like eight years ago. And I considered getting a second one, but didn't end up getting one. And the restraining orders only last like five years. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't really seem to do that much, unfortunately. Um, What about during their relationship? Like what what was he like? I mean, what did he do for a living? Was was he abusive at that time? Did she ever say? Um, I knew her just when she was getting out of that relationship. From what I understand, he was extremely abusive. And um, I know there were instances where um, he hit her and pushed her out of a car at one point. So um, these are things that I didn't experience uh, at at the time. I only found out from her later. Gosh, it's just so sad. We only have about 30 seconds left. But if you don't mind, tell me about the memorial that you're working on. Because it, it, she sounds like such an amazing woman. It, it's so nice that you're keeping her memory alive. Yeah. So um, weirdly, uh, about two weeks before she died, she and I had this huge discussion about death. We went to dinner and then we talked about dying and all these things. And after that, she called her parents and told them that if she died, they should have an open casket funeral. And she wanted a big elaborate headstone. Well, where she was buried, they don't allow big elaborate headstones. So I decided to start this project where we're trying to raise the, raise the funds to build a, a large bronze memorial of her that'll be dedicated to her, but also will have a plaque and inscription about just victims of domestic violence. That um, is so because, nice. Yeah, we just saw the picture. It's, it's beautiful. So um, 
That, that's that's incredible. We'll stay on the story. Obviously, it, it's set to go to trial soon. We'll, we'll continue to cover it. Robert, uh, thank you so much for coming on. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Okay, still to come tonight, we're trying to decide if, if this is just kitschy and kind of cool or just downright disgusting. You be the judge. Uh, looks like a plain old door from a house. Nothing special at all. But one of the country's most brutal and notorious mass murders happened right behind this door. And here's the macabre part. You can actually own it. It is for sale at an auction. Find out why some people are going helter-skelter for this piece of American. They call it murderabilia. Very strange. That's coming up next. The impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies because feeling full can sound like this. How did the interview go? I did it. I got the job. I can't believe it. And like this. Mom, I got first place at the science fair with my volcano project. That's amazing, sweetie. Congratulations. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished and everyone deserves to live a full life. Join the movement to end hunger at feedingamerica.org slash act now. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. As a teacher, I should know the answers. But with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, answers don't come easy. Steroids made my gut feel better, but they brought symptoms and risks of their own. A friend told me about the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and they helped me find a specialist. We talked through the pros and cons and landed on a new treatment. I feel like the guy with answers again. Don't wait. Make sure you have the latest info and the best plan for you. Spill your guts. Learn more at SpillYourGuts.org. Serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. I'm Michael Naranjo, and I'm a veteran. Today, I'm a sculptor. My fingers are my eyes. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year. With DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. In mid-2017, we received the news that nobody wants to hear your child has cancer. Saying Jude made us feel that everything was gonna be alright. It's like an army of people working together, following the same dream, which is getting a 100% success rate for curing childhood cancer. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for their news, traffic, weather, sports, and a community connection. It's the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times. It's critical that we keep AM radio in cars, because when cell and Internet services are down, this free emergency service could be your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Thank you for listening to News Nation, America's source for engaging and unbiased news. This break is brought to you by Adobe Photoshop. Here's a fun fact. Every day, millions of people around the world use Photoshop to create all kinds of cool stuff. Designs for t-shirts and posters, graphics to promote brands and businesses, images for social and websites. Anyone can do it. And to the guy who put a bulldog's head on a parakeet's body, you, sir, are a genius. Get started for free today. Click or tap the banner to head over to Photoshop.com. 
We are the Veterans Health Administration, and our hands provide life-changing care to over 9 million veterans across more than 1,200 facilities nationwide. Join hands with us to make an impact in your community. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Kids across America are going to school hungry. Millions of kids every day. But one simple thing can help change all of this for a hungry child in America. Good, healthy food and the energy it brings. With help from caring people across America, No Kid Hungry is providing healthy meals and hope to hungry kids so they can build better futures. To learn more about ending child hunger in America, go to helpnokidhungry.org today. So I am not sure I would want a souvenir from one of the most horrific and senseless crimes in American history, but... Hey, some people obviously feel differently. Uh, and if you're interested, now's your chance. If you're so inclined to own this door, doesn't look like much, but this was the front door to actor Sharon Tate's mansion in Beverly Hills in 1969 when she, her unborn baby, and everyone else inside the house was viciously murdered by followers of Charles Manson. In fact, the door used to have the victim's blood on it. It's up for sale in an auction of items connected to Hollywood and American cultural figures. Crime experts call this sort of collection murderbilia, where obsessed followers of violent events in history pay big bucks for items. So you wonder how much this will sell for? Well, the auction house first estimated around $4,000, but now bids have already passed $25,000. Listen, I wouldn't want to, I would not want that door in my house. Have a good night. Thanks for watching. Cuomo's next. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live. So let's get after it. Does this second federal indictment focusing on what 